mean, it's just good to know what the stakes are and what the issues are, because these issues are going to define our lives, our children's lives, but mm. in the future. And so... Steve Sherlock here for Franklin Matters, Franklin Public Radio, anywhere on the internet, WFPR.FM, and in the local Franklin Mass FM radio dial 102.9 here in the studio again today with my climate guide, Ted McIntyre. Ted, welcome back. It is great to be back on multiple levels. It's great to be back in this studio here in Franklin because it's so quiet and and encouraging of conversations. It's really fun to be here. Conversation-inducing is another way to put it, absolutely. Yeah, it's just so quiet. We've got a few little, if people haven't seen, we'll probably should post some pictures at some point because over time, clearly we've got the, the, the FCC license on the wall, but we got some uh, radio, not radio, uh, LP album covers, uh, if you don't, don't know what an LP is, send an email to see you. <laughs> and that'll be a topic for another session. <laughs> but the room is canary yellow, and it's got sound pads, you know, three or four per wall. Maybe yep. the room is 15 by 15, yep. if you're generous. And it's got LED lights strung around the top that are keep changing colors in a nearly psychedelic way, but not quite. It's a, it's nice. If my grandson were here, he would be finding the button and changing it to red because he likes the lava color. And then he plays with his toys and you don't step on the lava. You're going to get hurt. <laughs> but that's the deviation. Yeah. And the, to complete, the, we've got the mix panel like most radio places. We've got our microphones. We've got our headsets. We've got a couple of computers. And we've got a stack of a whole bunch of knobs and buttons and it's like I am very careful when I deal with those because <laughs> I'm still learning. I like my little simple devices. <laughs> but the quality of the sound and hopefully the content within it <laughs> helps as well, but so so you we're take we're much more seriously if you're in a studio. Why not? We are in a studio and we're about to you're about to help me make sense of this climate thing, which is continuing to, you know, give us extreme weather. Every time we turn around, there's some other extreme. Um, yeah, I mean, just just note in passing that our January has been populated with multiple 50-degree days. Yes. And my wife walked out of the front door the other day, and there was a summertime... Um, bucket of, you know, flower pot with dirt in it, and she was cleaning up, flipped it over, and there on January 13th was a flower had bloomed in Franklin. Popping in up. In the middle of January. And as Bill McKibben has said, it's all fun and games, it's all great until you say climate change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it all seems great until you say climate change, and then it gets to be a downer. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, and there is a significant difference between weather <laughs> And climate. <laughs> climate is the big trend that we're talking about, not just the weather day-to-day. Clearly, the weather is a symptom of it. They are interrelated. I mean, today it's snowing. We're just barely— Snow changed the rain. Changed, changed over the rain. Yep. We're barely in the freezing neighborhood. But a lot of 50-degree days 
our many 50-degree days in January is unusual, and the scientists trace it back. There are underlying climate causes. I, I can't go into mm-hmm. exactly how El Nino gives us warmer weather, blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, the people that know, know. Right. right. <laughs> so. Well, and I think there was a NOAA headline or details and such that it's easier for cold things to get warm than for warm things to get cold. And if I remember something in the physics going back into that, going back into the physics days, because of the heat transfer, cold helps to absorb the heat. So thereby it's easier to warm as opposed to heat getting cool or something that's hot getting cool. It's going to take more energy in order to do that. So it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I dare to tread there. I think one way to think of it is something called entropy. Entropy, which yes. Which is the order. Entropy is a measure of how orderly things are. Things that are cold tend to be more orderly, mm-hmm. right? And the analogy is always that your $1 bill is has high, no, low entropy because it's very ordered. By the time that $1 bill becomes 100 pennies, right, it's all mm-hmm. it's very easy to go from the ordered state to the disordered state of 100 pennies or warming things up compared to take energy out of the system, a little bit more difficult. That's yeah. why it was we didn't invent refrigeration until the 1870s. Right. Yeah, it took a time in our long path. And now we're on a slightly different path, but we're a path to net zero. And again, human behavior, our behavior, your behavior, each individual's behavior is going to be a choice in order to make us or to enable us to get there, however we get there. And we know the path's not easy. We've spent a couple episodes talking about, well, does the left hand know what the right hand's doing? <laughs> well, I, think, I mean, and again, I think it's an important ongoing discussion in climate stuff of the relative value of personal action hmm. versus societal systemic actions, mm-hmm. right? And that it is very important for people to, and maybe we'll touch back on this later in the show, behaviorally do the right thing, Mm -hmm. use less energy. But it's also important that we systemically address the causes and the reasons that we are using all that energy. So there's two sides of the same coin. Neither, I mean, there's no simple answer. It's kind of nature versus nurture question from Mm -hmm. things gone by. But every, every time we say personal action, be a good person and sustainable, we should also say, and we need systemic change to the way we generate energy. Right. Yep. Speaking so, of which. Speaking of which, let's go to the list. Which, let's, go to the, <laughs> let's go. So last time we spoke, uh, Steve, last time we talked, we had with us Kobe Frangillo. Yes. Who is a council person here in Franklin. And we were discussing the proposal that the town should begin to think about, start thinking about, thinking about, in a sense, mm-hmm. uh, becoming what's called a climate leader community. Correct. Which is basically some commitments to clean energy stuff that is a threshold mm-hmm. uh, that allows you then to get other state granting. Granting things. stuff. And we talked about it here in Franklin, but also as a template for other towns. What a great idea. Right. One of the things that's in that... One of the threshold things that the town would have to do is to agree to a updated building code, which would then 
encourage, at least, the electrification of housing. Mm-hmm. Electrification of housing means that new construction would generally be with heat pumps and have electrical heating as opposed to some fossil fuel gas. gas or oil or whatever. And yep. the, good, the good news is that the town council accepted uh, the councilman's, the council person's recommendation, and Franklin, the ship has sailed, right? We now, as part of a plan, we're going to try to become a climate leader community, and that is good on multiple levels because it makes the town more attractive uh, receiver of grant funding from the mm-hmm. city. Yeah, and just for edification and for the listeners, they've agreed to put it on the objectives as an objective. And I think the argument is convincing that and even the discussion, and you can go back and we'll include that particular episode in the show notes because you can go back and we spent, what, 40 minutes talking in detail around the six different points, four of which Franklin effectively has already kind of checked the box. So it's the other two that would, one, relatively a low lift according to his and most opinions, but at least one could be a little bit more of a challenge and that is indeed the stretch code. We have already accepted the prior stretch code for the building. This is now another notch higher, if you will. And at least according to some early returns, that obviously will take some conversation to make happen. So, yes, it was significant that the town council agreed to put it on their list of objectives. Now it's likely going to be continuing that discussion over time through the Economic Development Subcommittee, of which Kobe is a member along with chair, current chair, or they they have to reorganize. So we're assuming that Mel Hamblin will continue the chair role, but things have to be sorted out. But through that discussion, they'll eventually bring the proposal back to the town council, and then, yay, verily, hopefully sometime either this year or next, they will indeed have checked all six boxes and... Put in the application. So that's the good news. That's the good news. It is good news. It is the good news, and it is good news. There's a correlated piece of news that came up just this week, Mm -hmm. and that was an article in the Boston Globe that suggested, or didn't suggest, it reported that at least eight of potentially ten towns in Massachusetts have been given permission to outright ban the use of natural gas in new buildings. Mm-hmm. So this is a controversial topic because I think the town of Brookline did it first to ban construction. The state objected because of home rule issues, you know, arcane politics. Long and short of it, there are at least eight towns that now have permission to, to ban the use of natural gas in new construction. And that is related but different from this thing that Franklin is doing with the mm-hmm. opt-in specialized code because the opt-in specialized code does not outright ban gas, right? But it's still, these are all things Encourages, yes. Yeah, and we've talked in a prior episode because I think we also talked um, when Mayor Wu took Boston out, they withdrew their application to be part of the pilot because effectively the 10 communities were part of the legislation. They were going to be a pilot to see okay, well, what effect does it truly have? Some people fear that it's actually going to drive the costs up, which in some cases it may. But then the life cost of the building, maintenance cost in terms of return on investment, should be shorter because it's operating much more efficiently. So 
by the state agreeing that these 10 communities, of which eight have been named so far, I haven't seen the name for the other two, but that's minor, um, they'll at least be producing the data upon which the rest of the decisions and should the state as a whole actually adopt it. What will we have learned from? Mm -hmm. So, Again, it's all good news. It's all good. Absolutely. And people should know that these things are slowly lurching forward. And I think that the one of the apparently small but maybe bigger ideas that fall out of this kind of thing is that the choice in Franklin to go with this this specialized code eventually, presumably mm-hmm. when it happens, sure. and these eight towns, eight of ten towns that are now committed to banning gas, are basically setting the rules of the game as things go forward, mm-hmm. and that will define how. That, in a sense, defines future choices that people will have in the year 2025, 2028, 2030. And that is an important concept that economists sometimes come up with called path dependency, which is a vocabulary buzzword, path dependency in quotation marks, where a decision taking at this point in time has consequences downstream for future decisions. Now, well, that's not a very profound thing to say, right? Well, Always true, but still it's a concept that you, you can hang on to. Once you've made that decision, it kind of precludes you from making other decisions. And that's the rub, right? Because so with this group of eight going off, they'll do some data gathering. Obviously, they'll live through a couple of years of developers doing the processing, capturing the data. What is it actually doing? Are they addressing all the societal justice concerns, the health concerns, the cost concerns? Are they truly getting an ROI shorter than kind of a normal fossil fuel building? Those are all decisions that the data will come to base the future decisions on. So, yes, it's good. It's not going to happen overnight, but the process is starting. And if you think, if you imagine that, assuming it all works out properly, Mm -hmm. as we hope, then by the year 2035, your decisions are constrained in that a gas hookup is no longer acceptable. It's taboo. It's like smoking in the restaurant. Right? Right. You just don't do that anymore. No. And so these are so there's, there's this concept of path dependency, which is an interesting one, which I want to come back to. A different important idea that relates to these things in a funny way is something called the critical juncture. So let me let me tell you the story. Why the heck we're talking about critical <laughs> critical juncture is a kind of a, in quotation marks. It's kind of a sociological uh, term. So he, here's my story. I was listening to a podcast the other night, and I happened to be. It's called the Tides of History, and it it talks about classical ancient civilizations. It was talking about China. This podcast it talking about I think it was called pronounced the Zhao Z H O U dynasty. Mm-hmm. So this is 1,000 B.C. or so. And this particular dynasty, this particular guy, right, who's, he somehow, well, in China it turns out that in order to be legitimate, if you were to be the leader, it wasn't that you had the biggest sword or the biggest army. It was that you were the right one to offer offerings to the, to the heavens to get a good harvest. So your, your governing authority came from interceding with the gods to make sure that we didn't get a flood on the Yellow River. Mm-hmm. Funny, you know, how that developed. Anyway, a thousand years ago, this guy is the first one to claim the mandate from heaven. 
right? Which if, if you've talked at all about Chinese stuff, the mandate of heaven is the, the rationale is why the emperor is the emperor. And so the guy making the podcast says, this is a critical junction. This was a tiny kind of political decision that this guy made 1,000 B.C. in order to claim his leadership. He said, oh, my God, I have the mandate of heaven. But that became the ruling justification for 3,000 years of Chinese history. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. So that leads you to this idea of in, in sort of history, sociology, of what's called a critical juncture where there's this big... Okay, now we're switching to, to a big event, but an event that is kind of disruptive that then sets the terms for the next centuries, mm-hmm. okay? And that is in contrast to sort of an incremental approach, blah, 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 blah. Critical juncture, like the Russian Revolution was a critical juncture, right? They went from the czar to the communism, and that set the terms from 1917 to 1989, mm-hmm. right? Um, the fall of, the, of Russia... Another big disruptive event followed by a stable period, but sets the terms for essentially the war on terror that we're still living with, right? right? Yeah. So there's all these things. And you start thinking about it. If you're a climate person, you say, well, we are heading into some enormous energy transition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to happen over the course of 10 years or so. Yeah. In fact, one of the examples of a critical juncture was the invention of the printing press. Sure. Changed Europe. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Afterwards, it was different. Uh, and so... That kind of, so, that, so there's these, these couple ideas floating around of critical juncture and path dependency. And just, I think it's interesting, let me go back to the path dependency. That one of, If you Google this stuff, and, and of course, I don't really know it. I Wikipedia this stuff, right? There's a path dependency, an example of path dependency of decisions made today that have been predicated on decisions made a while ago is the fact that your computer keyboard still has the what's called a QWERTY, the Q-W-E-R-T-Y keyboard, the which... If top you characters on the left kind of left side of the keyboard. <laughs> it, I mean, that was defined explicitly in the 1870s to slow down the typist because if they made a convenient keyboard, they typed too fast and the Mark Twain typewriters would jam up. So they changed it to make it harder to type. But that's fixed in, and we still, to this day, are using... so. Again, why do we talk about keyboards? Well, the, the decisions we make today about how energy issues are implemented are going to have decades of consequence, mm-hmm. right? So let me just, just keep going, rolling with this idea. Yep. Historian at Providence College named Thea Riafranco, right, who I have a podcast with somewhere, I'm proud to say, she wrote a paper basically saying that we are at a critical juncture when it comes to renewable energy, in particular to the extraction of lithium, just as an example. Mm-hmm. Right? We need tons of lithium to make all those Ford F-150s, right? On the other hand, her paper says, look, if we, instead of making a lot of Ford F-150s, we make electric trains and mass transit, we only use a tenth of the lithium, much less damaging than giving everyone a Ford F-150, electric F-150, right? And this is a critical juncture. We're going to make decisions today that are going to echo for decades. And that that's just one example. And I, I think it's an interesting vocabulary, interesting way to think about mm-hmm. what the climate movement is doing because we are 
at a critical juncture, we're making decisions, and those decisions are going to be the predicate on which future decisions are made. And it's just good to think about things that way. Well, and I think it goes back in a couple of analogies of as you were, as I was listening, you explain a couple of analogies come to mind, and hopefully remember them now that I've <laughs> paused. But the uh, even the technology supposedly of the size of the shuttle uh, booster stations supposedly go back to the Roman wagon wheels which then somehow translated to the width of the ox carts and then the width of the trains, which carry the equipment. So there's something, you know, going back. There was a decision made at some point in time, and we're still getting the effects of it. I mean, to the same point, someone described the the process by which the city of Boston was planned. Hmm. And the way the city of Boston was planned is that the bunny— 200 years ago, found its way through the, the the undergrowth, and then the deer followed the bunny through the undergrowth, and then the, the people who lived here followed the deer path, and then the, the pilgrims came, and they followed it, and so it's completely random, but driven by things that happened hundreds of years ago. Right. And, you know, it's good and bad. I mean, there are advantages to being building on what exists. Well, yeah, and that's, there's a technology... Uh, developmental term that I had come up with on our, one of our other series, uh, the Franklin for All, where there's desire lines. So if you've put in, you know, a new development, uh, call it something like buildings around a quad, and you're not sure where the sidewalks should go, they left the quad kind of open and then just watched the people walking. And they determined the paths, and then they paved those paths. They paved the bare spots. <laughs> they paved the bare spots. But the desires, they let the people in terms of, well, I'm coming out of this building. I need to go there. I'm going to go this way, right? And then that times multiple people, multiple time, et cetera. So in a space of, I don't know, three months, <laughs> the paths are defined, <laughs> and thereby they can pave it, as opposed to somebody in a dock room somewhere, back room maybe more than a dock room because he's got to draw it. Just, oh, this looks good. Let me do this kind of a path. Right. And yet we probably see those where there's a nice path, but there's this worn piece on the other side that goes the other way. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, I, I mean, so, again, it, it's the, the analogies don't bear a huge amount of weight, but they are ways to, to put into context the energy transition in the new society that we are thinking about building. Right. Literally, I mean, we have to be open and honest that, that – you know, 50 years from now, we're going to be quite different, either for the better or worse, mm -hmm. right? one way or the other. And so yeah. we need to be thinking about how to make the society of 50 years from now a better one than we have now. Yeah, and I think it goes back into kind of the concept that still is talked about out there in terms of the carbon offsets and the cost of carbon. But effectively, any decision now is not going to be, oh, well, gas is cheap, oil is cheap, let's just use that. You've expanded the circle of decision-making items and, okay, what's the impact of continuing fossil? We've got documentation, you know, poor health, poor uh, climate, et cetera, et cetera. So thereby that changes the scope of the decision and thereby electrification becomes 
more cost-effective, and that's what this pilot is supposed to do, to see over, you know, those eight communities, and again, tying back to why did Boston withdraw? Presumably, they had put their application in, but because of the pilot nature of it, there were already some communities that had kind of social justice areas, so Boston may not have been selected. And then the amount of work on their planning department in order to keep the application going, they just decided, well, if we're not going to get there, we, we've got other things we still need to do, so let's go off and do those. So it wasn't really, you know, Boston saying it's not going to work. No, Boston wants to get it to work. They just decided, well, if we're not going to get there, we've got to do other things in the meantime. And, and I think Boston in particular has, i got to be careful because I don't know all of the details, but something called BERDO, it's an acronym, B-E-R-D-O, Building Energy something or other. But it, it basically says that the big buildings in downtown Boston need to start reporting their carbon emissions hmm. and have a plan to start reducing them, right, which is an issue that's kind of unique, well, kind of, is unique to Boston in the sense that Boston has many, many of the biggest buildings. Right. right? And that's, that's low-hanging fruit to try and reduce those emissions. So Boston is doing good things on its own. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it all comes back to thinking about the long-term consequences of decisions made in the present and not being, I don't know what the word, presentism. I've seen that one. Presentism is that all of your decisions, only, you only need to take into account things you see around you right now. You don't need to think about future, future generations. Future consequences. Future consequences, things like that. Which leads then to a, to a whole other connected thing. So just your listener, we're talking about sort of the, 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 the critical juncture and the path dependence. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of that stuff ties into personal behavioral um, um, choices. What you do, what I do, what each do, each of us do as part of our daily routines, daily lives. And there was an article that was somewhere between an op-ed and a report on a paper article that was published. And it basically, so we'll put up the link to the this Guardian article, but it basically said that the major, it made the claim the major driver of climate change are behavioral patterns, especially among the well-to-do in the West. Mm. And that even deeper than the carbon emissions, the concept, what they refer to as overshoot, which is to say, which again is a term they're using to define how in particular Western society, but humanity, is using more of the planet than there is. Hmm. Right? You essentially right. need, you know, two planet Earth to sustain what we're yeah. doing, and that 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 the car that carbon emissions are just one aspect of all these other extractive things we're doing to damage the planet. Uh, and like, for example, plastic pollution, right? Because we all want a plastic bag to take our uh, Dunkin' Donut home with, right? Mm-hmm. And is that that's not sustainable. So this article, what this article was saying, I'm not sure I f- fully buy into the article, but the thing they were saying was that um, a lot of the behavioral practices that individual people have are based on m- intentional marketing from corporations. 
that we that we humans our desires mm. have been engineered in a way uh, by these corporates to their benefit. And yeah, you kind of see that. It's like every TV ad shows you a nice car that you can have, right? And is that that helps you be human, right? Fulfill mm-hmm. your human potential. Climb up Maslow's uh, pyramid by solves forty nine thousand things by buying this car. Exactly. <laughs> and and so they spent some time railing against the marketing aspect of this um, extractive lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I mean, I sort of agree with the point. And, and this then goes all the way back to the uh, Emperor Zhao, right? Mm-hmm. A thousand years ago, your life was based on a belief that the the leader had the mandate of heaven, right? Completely different concepts than what you have. But they were still human. And the question is, how do we... I'm not saying go back to a thousand years B.C. No, or anything, no. But in fact, that open up your idea of what it means to be human. And it doesn't necessarily... Being human does not necessarily mean you consume things all the time. Or you have the, the latest Porsche Taycan, mm-hmm. what do they call it, electric car. That's, that's not being human. But what is being human? And that's a big change with lots of junctures and, you know, path dependencies, all mm-hmm. kinds of things, right? You threw them all in one sentence there. <laughs> so that gives me an opportunity, I hope. <laughs> no, I, I agree in concept that it clearly, and I think we've talked uh, a number of times about how the behavior is going to need to change. Um, it's easy for us to, you know, run natural gas, run oil, uh, auto cars today. You can. It's much easier to get a gas-powered car than it is a hybrid car. Um Jeff Roy has a uh, blog that he started about, uh, I forget the term, maybe it'll come to me quickly, but his uh, range anxiety, because once he's charged, he can only go so far. So is he going to have sufficient charging stations so he can continue within his range to continue his travels? If somebody doesn't want to deal with that, they're going to buy gas, Right. That's the behavior change we're talking about. And there are people who, you know, respectfully, they're up in the higher echelon. They're flying different places because they don't have to drive. They've got this private jet. That lifestyle is going to have to change. Lifestyle is going to have to change. And we've talked about it. It would really significantly change the nature of business if business did kind of remote access meetings instead of having 14 people travel in a plane all the time, right? That's a change. And we've seen just individually in our own behavior, yeah, we can have a conversation over Zoom. We can have a conversation in person. That's still the nature of, you know, human nature and having a conversation. And they're probably, with all due respect, more respectful in person, we may be less likely, not that you or I would, but as a general rule, people aren't going to say things that face-to-face that they wouldn't normally say face-to-face. But behind a keyboard to somebody else on, you know, on the internet, you we've seen the trolls out there. <laughs> they, they can go crazy. <laughs> well, but but just, just to close, I'm interested in sort of cycling back and closing things. Jeff Roy's blog on range anxiety mm-hmm. speaks to an individual need. Like, yes. I want my car. 
at the same time, and Jeff Roy, I think, is in the leadership of this, there's a systemic thing that says the society needs to plan to have EV chargers as plentiful as gas stations. Absolutely. Right? We spent 100 years putting right. gas stations everywhere. Right. All right, now we need to quick, quick, quick put yeah. in. So, and all that is sort of after you've made the decision that electric vehicles are the path you're going to take. Yeah. As opposed, right? So, again, there's many layers, but the systemic change associated with you know, your individual choices is an important thing. It's all tied up. Well, and that's where just a, a lot of time in corporate world, I was a change manager. And change is hard. Change happens on a regular basis. But if you make it easier for people to make the change, they're more willing to do so. And then in a corporate environment, obviously, they've got, they've got objectives or financial goals, et cetera. Now, in this world economy, <laughs> If we want to continue to live in the world we are living in and in a better, you know, more natural, I hesitate to say natural, more normal uh, climate as opposed to gyrations and storms and extremes, we have to make those behavioral changes. That's what it comes back to, right? And, and, I mean, that then segues into a whole other discussion about uh, – you know, at a planetary level, how do you, does the human species, right? Forget nation states. I mean, how does the human species at the planetary level get its act together enough to do the right thing here, mm -hmm. right? And that speaks to all kinds of what are called governance issues, right? And you can, I've seen articles that predict a breakdown of the nation state, and you're going to end up going back to sort of medieval Italy with city-states like New York, yeah, Los more, Angeles. More of a tribal-type environment. Singapore, right? Yeah. They're on their own, and yeah. they can take action at their own level. Uh, and that, yeah, it's a, a fascinating question of how do you, because the United Nations apparently is not strong enough to enforce any kind of global action. Well, and I think, and, to, respectfully, the, the membership is so diverse. You've certainly got the high income, high efficiency economies based upon current knowledge, et cetera, the U.S., et cetera. But then you've got these other, you know, lesser economies. They're still people. But in some cases, based upon where they are out in some eastern atoll, et cetera, they're going to get wiped out. You know, so if we got, call it 300 companies that are members of the United Nations, there may be 275 or 250. Some countries potentially can disappear or certainly lose economic significance. That's going to change the conversation as well. And, and, and again, given the fact that those, you know, as you say, those developed richer nations, they're the ones that cause the problem. Again, I'm, we've said this, but yeah. it bears yeah. repeating over and over and over and over again. Like, the West caused the problem. And those island nations and nations in Africa and around the world, those lesser developed and they pay the bill for what we are choosing to do. And so that comes back to how does everyone get together on the same page mm -hmm. and do the right thing, however you define that. I am not yeah. smart enough to define how do, it. How do we redistribute that economic wealth in a just manner? Right, right. And it's just worth thinking and being aware of. I mean, climate, people listening to this podcast, you don't have to be... I mean, it's just good to know what the stakes are and what the issues are, because these issues are going to define our lives, our children's lives, right, mm. in the future. And so if you 
if you're listening to this podcast, you already care enough, right, to want to know. <laughs> and so these are sort of things that uh, keep coming around as fundamental aspects of the discussion that there's no easy answers to. Right? If there was an easy answer to this, George H.W. Bush would have fixed it in 1992. <laughs> right? And here we are. I mean, so, so okay, so we're like way down the rabbit hole here, right? We've gone from, <laughs> we've gone from the opt-in code as kind of example of path dependency. We've talked about critical junctures. We've talked about you know, the QWERTY keyboard keeping us doing typos even today. Then we went on and talked about the behavioral stuff, but there are two deeper aspects of the behavioral thing that I, I thought were cute. Right? One was, a, again, a book written by a um, young woman in England basically talking about climate denialism and whether or not you think the world's going to end. Mm-hmm. Right? So now somebody who's in their 20s has lived with climate since they were, I mean, I was blessed that I grew up blissfully ignorant of these things. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, these kids have lived it their whole life. Right? They're facing questions of, you know, should I have a family? You know, are we all going to die of starvation? You know, what's the, and I mean, the response to some of this can be, oh yeah, we're all doomed. Let's have a party. And I keep thinking of, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Mask of the Red Death, right? Mm. Where the, the plague's outside and all the rich people go in and have a party inside mm-hmm. the castle, right? Um, and what she says, what the, the book, I think, argues is that that's not true and that's a gift to the people who want to deny things, mm. right? Uh, and I guess I was thinking about, for, for different reasons my, myself the other day, it's like, what do we see is playing out here? I mean, it's kind of the worst case scenario is that society collapses. I mean, these are weird things to even talk about. It sounds like a science fiction movie, right? Right. But that climate change affects the food. The food, it affects wars. Governments kind of break down. It's like, okay, fine. If the world is at war with itself in 50 years, they're probably going to blow up all the tankers going through the Suez Canal. So there'll be a natural decrease in the use of fossils. be a lot more people dead, right? But there'll be some humans, and in 10,000 years, maybe we'll have rebuilt something. Mm. Like, that's a pretty bleak future, but it's not, it's not the same as the future that says, oh yes, we will turn planet Earth into Venus, which has something like 50% carbon dioxide in this atmosphere, 800 degrees Fahrenheit, right? We could do that too, but that's not very likely. Mm. Um, and so it's like, I hope it doesn't, I hope we can intervene before these cascading societal collapse things start to happen. But man, you never know. You never know. Yeah. Right? I mean, look, even with Putin, Putin is trying to cut off the food supply coming out of Ukraine, which then affects populations around Africa and Asia who depend on that weed. So that's the idea of these things cascading one on top of another. I guess the last thing I'll say on that very gloomy thing I just said Mm -hmm. is that in the year 1000, everyone was convinced the world was going to end on the year, instead of Y2K, it was Y1K, (laughs) right? Right. We're all going to die. We all didn't die, right? Right. We're all here. So I don't want to get sucked into some sort of... uh, uh, 
you know, these cults that think the world's going to end on a certain day. Yeah, Things are going to keep chugging away. I mean, how do we make it the best that we possibly mm-hmm. can? Yeah, dystopian views certainly are out there. Um, there's some interesting dystopian literature. Over time, we'll find out how much of that actually becomes true. And if the human nature is what it is, and it's based upon goodness and love, et cetera, then there may be something that will survive in that, and thereby we will have some hope. So, yeah, that's that's what gets me up in the morning is that little bit of hope. <laughs> well, and and the, last, the last sort of behavioral question. So there is a chain here. There's, a, there's, there's some... There's a little bit of a through line. It's kind of vague, but there's an article in the New York Times, an interview with an author. The book's author, I think his last name is Malm, M-A-L-M. The name of the book is How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And he is making the case that certain kinds of violence directed at sort of corporate actors to blow up pipelines and not not people but blah 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 um, is called for now, I'm not I'm not endorsing that at all <laughs> right in this part we're not but it's just an when you start talking about behavioral it, I think the case that the gentleman makes is that everything we've done that climate activists have been too polite we all believe the system's going to work mm-hmm. right and here we are in 2023 with more carbon di- dioxide in the air than we had 20 years ago Right? So your politeness is not working. How do you get there? Right. What are you going to do? Yeah. And there are moves to more confrontational um, methods. God knows we should maybe talk about it sometime. But, but I mean, it's just an interesting read. And, of course, the, in the article, the, the interviewer challenged the guy about his ethics. Right? How can you call for violence? And I'm not sure the guy had the greatest answers. But, I mean, it's an interesting behavioral response that we're looking at. Well, and we've seen it, relatively speaking, in other areas where, you know, if, if two people talk and then one person argues, then obviously you, you just begin that escalation, right? So at some point in time, he's positing that that conversation that escalates, well, at some point in time, it's going to get beyond potentially even physical. It's just, well, let's attack the thing. Right. And I mean, it makes sense that it would that would let's hope that people wouldn't have to get that far to do that. Um, I mean, it's it's an interesting discussion because what the mostly what this book, I haven't read the book. I read the article, full disclosure, mm -hmm. you know, but he's saying that the fossil fuel companies in particular are worried about what's called stranded assets. Right. Yes. So they put a billion dollars into building, uh, you know, an oil pipeline on the north slope of Alaska, and then nobody wants to buy the oil. Sure. Right? They're out a billion bucks. Right. He's this guy saying, "Well, yeah, by," and again, I'm not endorsing this, but by doing damage to the pipelines, you are proving to the corporation that that asset is at risk, right? And that is a good way to bring home the message, mm-hmm. right? That so I just I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's an interest. But what I was going to say was. If you haven't read the book, or if you have read the book, uh, um, oh no, uh, what's the book? What is the book? <laughs> Blow up. No, the no, one the other about, one. The other one about uh, about that starts in India, where they're all uh, there's a huge. All right, I'll forget. Anyway, there's a book, actually quite a positive book, but throughout the the book, which will come to the name will come to me. 
there is there's this secret underground network that is assassinating corporate executives and blowing up airliners so that people will stop flying, right? And uh, it's kind of a, it's it's part of this dual prong to try and address climate change. It's really an interesting book, and I'm sure the name will come back to me as soon as I stop talking. So. <laughs> hmm. Anyway, that's that's a through line. That's just, again, all these things are, as I say, vocabulary. They're not ultimate right. explainers. Mm-hmm. They're concepts that you can use to view activities through. Uh, they are, I think, relevant at a 30,000-foot level to the idea that the United Franklin... The United States, the world is heading into a big disruptive period, right? And how are we going to manage that so that on the other side of the disruption, where we have centuries of relative equilibrium building on, mm-hmm. you know, we've done the right thing so sure. that on that side. Yep. And that's a, to my mind, that's an interesting question. Not everyone cottons to this sort of uh, 30,000 foot discussion. No, no. And I think that's where in terms of impact, come back to, okay, we've kind of followed the thread through the economic world and the climate world. And I will come back to little Franklin and little community here. Um, Clearly, there are connections. We're on major routes. We can go a number of places. There are railroads. There are cars. There are uh, highways, et cetera. Um, And at some point in time, depending upon where we want to go, it's going to still be easy enough to get there. But at some point in time, Based upon some of the other changes and things that we've seen, particularly with the extremes, roads get washed out, bridges get washed out, uh, shorelines get washed away. So, you know, the cape may not be the elbow that it was at some point in time. That may not exist. The map for Massachusetts will change. Franklin will have changed in response to that in ways that we don't yet know. Right? Because people, there are a number of folks that have, you know, summer places on the Cape. They potentially may not have those anymore. Um, they may not exist. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but then in terms of the, the food structure, right? So our food doesn't always get grown here. We like to buy local, eat local, but not all of it comes here from here. There are other farms in mass, but we've also seen uh, rains and floods wiping out you know, orchards and other farms out in Western Mass. In central U.S., where the grain belt theoretically is, if the weather there continues to disrupt their growing climates, then there's the wheat and the corn and other basic ingredients. Exactly how much of that is truly going to affect us, that remains to be seen. Um, and, And those are all interesting questions. Clearly, we can speculate, but I think coming back to us, we need to at least begin to recognize, and I think even one of the articles in there as well was uh, census, not census, but the uh, NOAA, uh, climate.gov, has just from 2015 to kind of current. These are the things that we have learned. Science has told us, (laughs) right? So again, okay, some people don't trust science, but look it, these are scientific. This is what is happening. Come back to that. And thereby, okay, well, in the chance that science might be right, let's take that chance and we individually take that action. And if we can come back to making it easy to make those changes, so advocating for 
the multiple uh, charging stations so it's much easier for people to use electrical vehicles so they don't have to get hung out to dry once they've gone to their end of their 400-mile charge (laughs) and get strung out there and make it easy for us to, you know, eat more vegan because cows contribute a whole bunch to the methane, et cetera, and there's things we can do. And there are people within Franklin as well who are trying to do that, and they've got their other website with— um, Energize Franklin. Energize Franklin in terms of these are the little things that people have done, whether it's uh, heat pumps, whether it's moving this, moving, doing that. And we can have the conversation there amongst those people who have done that and learned from that so that we can learn from it and not have to kind of reinvent the wheel, so to speak. Well, I guess the, the, I think what underlies what you're saying is that we are not passive. Right, we are not going to be sitting back watching what happens to Franklin as things evolve. We in a, can in a, make what the right thing happen by taking action, and that's a, a call. Yeah, and there, you've effectively got two choices: you can do nothing, which presumably won't advance anything other than the bad stuff, or you can take action to foster the hope on the good side. I'll take that choice. I think the odds are better in that case. Um, there may be those who are pessimistic, and I understand they're respectfully there. Let's have those discussions. Let's work through it. There, there may be something in there that we could have that discussion with that maybe he, was, he or she was misinformed on a point that may be the critical tipping point in terms of their decision process. But having those discussions one at a time, one by one, in a civil conversation, we can move forward. And I, the, the advice is always to begin with values. Mm-hmm. I mean, what values do you share? And once you establish that you both care about the future, then it's much easier to talk about climate stuff. How are we going to get there? How are we going to get there? Yeah. Right. Cool. Well, if you, I'm going to look. I was trying to sneak in my phone here to find the name of that book. It's driving me crazy. We may end up stopping this, putting it to the recording piece. And then do an addendum with the book link. <laughs> me crazy because it was a great book. It was a great book. I want to think that was one that you recommended. I started reading. I had gotten it as a library loan. I had to turn it back before I finished it. But yeah, it was really kind of a series of essays. Or uh, well, this, this was this. Or at least the book I'm thinking of was more the series of essays that were effectively going through kind of to the future state, but it may be a different book. We've talked about a bunch of books here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, this, I mean, there's this a whole topic by itself, right, yeah. of, uh, uh, of... References. References. What do people... I mean, and I keep coming back to the... I'm not much of an artist myself, but the whole question of the art, yeah. the songs, the books, the movies mm-hmm. that portray climate, that's fundamentally important to how people think about the issue. There's at least four episodes in the future, one on books, one on resources, one on songs, and one on art. (laughs) (laughs) So we could at least do a segment of each of the future ones with something in those areas. And oh, by the way, listeners, if you're assuming you're still with us, if you've got some sources that you would like to share that you've enjoyed either listening or watching or reading. Ministry for the Future. That was that was the one. That is a good book. That's the one I was making reference to. So, oh boy, scratch that itch. (laughs) (laughs) Recovered at the last minute. The Hail Mary player came through.
Yes, yes, yes. Well, thank you for taking time to help me and hopefully the other listeners. There's more than one out there, I'm assuming, <laughs> that have uh, made a little bit more sense of climate. It's still a complex topic. It's not going to be overnight. Um, it's a road, but we're on the journey. And thank you for helping us along that journey. I, it's a pleasure to be here. Happy. I just hope we didn't, didn't so confuse people. <laughs> or, <laughs> or lose, them, I didn't, I didn't or lose them along the way. <laughs> along the way with the twists and turns. But they, you have to have your seatbelt on and your neck brace in place to uh, play this game. So. Yes. And a quick reminder, we do this because Franklin matters. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. By the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.